not listening now. Uh, question to start us off. What's some advice that you would give someone moving here to Austin, Texas? Let's say someone is moving from Kansas City. They've never really been to Austin before. What's some advice that they should know? Don't come here. The stories are false. It's, it gets cold. The stories are false. It gets cold. So, Pac, don't throw out your winter coat. Did y'all do that? Did y'all throw out your winter coat? No. Got my winter coat with me. Abandoned Texas. Abandoned Texas. So don't even come. No. Don't bother coming. No. Uh, I don't know. Your dad is a proud Texan, and I don't know. That would just be right in his heart. <laughs> Watch out for the drivers. Yep. Watch out for me. I wish someone warned me about the highways here and that there are no signs. Anyway. So that's a piece of advice you would give someone. Take them to church. Lily. Allergy medicine. If you haven't had allergies before, you'll be surprised. And it might not happen the first year. It might not happen the second year. It happened for me the fifth year here. I learned that it happened to me the first day here, and I thought I was just sick for like two months. <laughs> I thought you were all making me sick. Uh, it's no deep. Wood yeah. fever. No, that was what, what kind of advice does Moses want the people to know before they cross over the river into the promised land? That's where we are in Deuteronomy. We're in the fifth book of the Pentateuch means five books. We're in the fifth book, Deuteronomy. We've been walking through seeing how, what's kind of our, our theme for this whole series that we've not done in about three, four weeks. Janae? The Bible uh -huh. is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. One story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. So it's all centered on his work of redeeming a people in Christ. It's all about him glorifying himself through that. So we should expect to see that tonight in Deuteronomy too. Where have we seen that so far? We've seen it in Genesis, where Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, taught that God created the world. He promised immediately after the fall to redeem mankind through Christ right after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, we saw that he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to create a nation and to bless the nations through. Then in Exodus, we saw God save a people out of slavery in Egypt, brings them into the wilderness. Then he gives them instruction on Mount Sinai. He gives them the law. We looked at how the law instructs us, uh, teaches us about our sin, our need for Christ. <coughs> it also gives us, excuse me, a rule of life, how we are to live to be holy before God. He tells uh, them in Leviticus about how to worship them, him rightly, uh, what it means to be holy, how an unholy people can be in the presence of a perfectly holy God. We talked about atonement and sacrifice. Uh, then we looked at numbers. And all most of Exodus through Leviticus through Numbers is all taking place at the base of Mount Sinai. Then in Numbers, they set out they sin, they keep grumbling against God, and he curses them to wander for 60 years. So the whole generation is going to die. So this whole generation's been wiped out. The next generation, everyone who's 20 years and younger or anyone who's born in the wilderness, is now standing on the edge 
of the promised land. They're standing there. They're about to cross over. Moses knows he's about to die. God's told him that he's going to die. He says, Moses, you will not cross over. Moses, too, with the people, sinned against God. Uh, so the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, the whole of Deuteronomy, is what Moses is saying to the people before they go in. It's a series of speeches or sermons that Moses gives them. Imagine you're an Israelite standing there. You've been wandering the desert probably for about 40 years. If you're less than 40, you've been wandering the desert your entire life. You've been eating bread sent from heaven every day. God's been leading you. You've been watching a pillar of fire go ahead of you your whole life. You've probably seen your parents or your grandparents die, either from disease or in battle, or maybe a snake bit them. So all of this stuff has happened your whole life. You're in the wilderness, and every day people are probably talking about the very moment that you're in right now, standing at the edge of the promised land, waiting, wondering what it's going to be like. Wonder what color my house is going to be. How big is the vineyard that I'm going to get is going to be? Will I live by the sea in the hill country? How hard is the battle going to be to take the land? They still have to fight. So you're standing there on the border. Maybe your mind is wandering to some of these questions that people have been kind of muttering about, thinking about for the last 40 years. Maybe you're kind of trying to get a glimpse over your dad's shoulder to see if you can see off in the distance maybe some of the hills, the valleys that your people are going to go inherit. Maybe your mind's just blank with nervousness. What do you think the people need to hear when they're about to cross over? If you were Moses, what would you tell Israel in this situation? What instruction would you give to them? What do you think they need to hear before they go into the promised land? Any thoughts? Jeanette. Don't turn from God. Don't turn from God. Yeah, remain steadfast. That would be helpful. Because they could all see the pillar of fire and they knew that God who saved them, I would ask them, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Because yeah. they're about to go in there. That's a question that they have to ask themselves. Yeah. If you notice, those were both two just one sentence answers. Short little things that he wants them to remember. And I think he does give them a short little things that he wants them to remember. He repeats a lot of the laws he's already told them, a lot of the commandments, the little kind of seemingly tiny laws about what to do in the land, um, a lot of reminders about who they are. A lot of most of the early part of Deuteronomy is Moses recounting everything that's happened to them, just reminding them. And then we come to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And we get kind of a little sentence, uh, a mantra, you could call it, something to remember before going into the promised land. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Listen up. This is who God is, and this is what he expects of you. God is the Lord, Yahweh. He is one, and you are to love him. That's it. That's what he wants them to remember going in. God is the Lord, Yahweh. He's one, and you are to love him. So Moses is kind of like a coach, giving some final advice to players right before they go on the field. When the Cowboys go on the field, when they try and take on the Eagles fruitlessly last week, they've already trained as much as they could. The coaches, right before they go on the field, aren't going to tell them anything new. Oh, by the way, we forgot to tell you about this thing that the Eagles do. Or, oh, by the way, did you ever think about doing this technique out there? Uh, all a good coach will do at that point is remind them of something that they already know, something of what's most important that they need to keep in their mind. Remember the code of the warrior. <laughs> Maybe something strange like that. <laughs> Nerves can make you do funny things. Cheering crowds, maybe you're at a new stadium. These things can distract you. Fear. So that's why you hear little mantras like, keep your eye on the ball, play hard. Peyton, did you hear any of those in volleyball? Don't What's an example of a ball? What? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are dozens. Uh, break a leg, you hear before. That's more encouragement, not something to remember. Uh, but you hear that before theater. Yeah, little things that you can keep in your mind when the nerves really start to get to you. You guys are standing on a border. Not of the promised land, but of adulthood. Israel's job wasn't done when they crossed the border. They were really just getting started. You guys are kind of just getting started. When you head off to college, or when you go start a job, when you leave your parents' house for whatever reason, when you go get married, you're just kind of getting started. What's a mantra? What's a phrase that can keep you focused as you're heading into the rest of your life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This mantra tells us who to love and how to love. This tells us who to love and how to, to love him. So look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Before there's even a commandment, an instruction about what to do, Moses says, listen up here in Hebrew, it's Shema. This is known as the Shema. That's the first word there. Hear, listen, take heed. Listen up. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have to know who God is before you can love him. We have to start with truth, with reality. If I were to say, I love my dad. He's four foot two, he's blue, and he's 20 years old. And he can fly. Oompa Loompa. Yeah. <laughs> can I meet him? Is he Superman? 
You'd probably not ask that. You'd say, flying <laughs> he's not a flying smurf. <laughs> uh, you would say, I know your dad's not a flying Fly smurf. You'd say, that's not your dad. That's something imaginary. Mm. That's not real. To love someone, you have to know someone. So our first job is to know God. So how do we know God? What's one way we know God? The Bible. God's revealed himself in his word. It's how he's spoken to us, communicated to us, revealed himself to us. In the Bible, we learn that God alone is God. He is one. See how it says that in this verse? The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. One thing that means is that the Lord is the Lord alone. There aren't many gods. God isn't many things. God isn't the tree. God isn't that feeling you get. God alone, the personal God of the Bible, Yahweh, is God alone. Moses' whole speech in this section of Deuteronomy is really about idolatry. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is God alone. All the idols in the nations around them, all the idols in the nation where they're going into, they'll have a bunch of little statues. These are all fake gods. They're not real. The God who made the world, who revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, the God who pres whose presence is in the tabernacle as they're speaking, he alone is God. Yes, Janelle. That's a really good question. That's what we're trying to do with this whole thing is okay. read the Bible and say, how can I read this that's applicable to me? The first thing we have to do is read it through the lens of Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ himself has said the whole Bible is about me. In Luke 24, he says Moses was writing about me. In John 5, he uh, rebukes the Pharisees because he says you think that in this, you read the scriptures, you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. So the first thing we have to do is read it in light of Christ. The New Testament gives us some principles about how to apply the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to us. Different laws are used different ways. Some apply directly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's applied directly to us. Some uh, are the principle is applied to us. So one instance is that... Paul says, you shall uh, not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Mm -hmm. And he uses that to advocate for paying pastors. Oh, yeah. So he uses that law. He's not expecting um, a merchant in Thessalonica to not muzzle his ox. That doesn't really apply to him. But he says it does apply in a principle way. The principle of the Old Testament law is to let the ox eat while he's working. Let your pastor eat while he's working and serving you. So Paul uses it in that way. So that's another way we can use the law. Some laws are clearly done away with. Uh, Jesus gets rid of food laws. Sacrifice laws are fulfilled in Christ. So there are different ways that the New Testament teaches us how to apply. And it's worth a lifetime of studying. Um, but that's what we're trying to do here. 
So one thing we're trying to do tonight is see how does this, which is written to Israel, which is instruction before they go into the promised land, apply to us who don't have a physical promised land, but have a promised land in heaven awaiting all believers who are waiting to cross the shore of death to go in. So how does it apply to us? That's one, one of the things we're looking at is idolatry. This is a warning against idolatry. Mm-hmm. That still stands for us today. Yes. So that's one thing that clearly stands for us today. What is idolatry? Uh, idol- idolatry is anything we make in our mind in place of God. It's something we love more than God. Uh, an Israelite who loved his vineyard or his wife more than God made an idol out of his vineyard or his wife. If you love you two, or your parents, or even yourself more than God, you have idols. Is there anything in your life that would make you angry if God took it away from you? Well, if your parents take it away from you. If your parents take it, if God takes it away through your parents. If so, that thing or that privilege is probably an idol. It was really hard for my for me when my sports career ended because of an injury. I was really sad. I went through an identity crisis. I didn't know who I was. Wrestling was probably an idol to me. And God took it away from me, and it hurt. But can you see God being kind to me and taking away an idol from me and taking my focus, my love, off of that thing that's so fragile that can easily go away everyone's athletic career ends at some point and directing it to God God often takes away idols we love through painful processes for our good so one principle we can take away from this for us Janae is a warning against idolatry Uh, we can also learn just facts from this and learn about God more so in the Bible we learn that God is three in one Here, we're clearly learning that God is one. We're getting taught about monotheism. One, mono, theism, theos, God. God isn't three gods. He's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons in one God. There's one God who's eternally existed in three persons. It's how he's always existed. It's a mystery, something we confess, something we seek to understand by faith alone. In the Bible, God also gives us a reason to love him, both in creation and redemption. He's the God of love, who in love not only created the world, but sent his son to redeem the world, to save his people. That's love. That's how we know what love is. God's eternal love for himself within that trinity has spilled over into a love for his people, a love for unworthy, undeserving people, sinners and rebels. God's love is so great, so powerful, so strong, that he doesn't leave those sinful rebels in their sin, in their rebellion. He saves his people out of it. They become his people. He becomes their God. He's using his covenant name here. How much more is he a covenant God to us in Christ when we partake of him by faith 
not just by birth to Jewish parents, but by faith. Is God your God? Think about that for a second. Is God your God? Yes, God is the Lord of all. But here in Deuteronomy, he's speaking to his people, to his nation, not to all the nations. He's saying, you, Israel, I am your God specifically. He had a people. He was especially gracious to that people. And he still has a people. Not Israel, but the church. Christians. Is God your God? Are you one of his people? How do you become one of his people? By faith. By believing in Jesus, the Son of God. By turning from your idolatry of self. By turning from your self-rule your sin, your disobedience, and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. The love of God sent his beloved son to die in the place of guilty sinners. And the love of God unites us to him by faith. And the love of God raises us up with Christ, who was raised from the dead and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, where they love one another forever and ever. And so the love of God raises us up to lives of love. The good news of the gospel, this is maybe the most important thing I'll say tonight. The good news of the gospel is not that if we love God, he will love us back. Or that if we love God enough, he'll show his love for us. That's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God loves us first. He shows his love for us by sending his son to die for us. The gospel actually defines what love is. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The good news of the gospel isn't love God and he'll love you. That's law. What we've been reading tonight in Deuteronomy is law. The gospel, which is not the law, says God loves you and will by faith give you a love for him. Praise God that what Moses commands here in the law, God grants in Christ. The gospel motivates us to love God. The gospel doesn't um, demand our love to get God's love in return. The gospel flips that and motivates us to love because of God's initial love for us. We love God not to earn his love, but out of gratitude. What can happen if we mix up that order? What's a problem that can arise? What's a pit we can fall into? If we mix up that order of us having to love God before he'll love us, which is law, not gospel. I definitely don't 
like, you know, we don't, we don't always hook up first. We send so much that, like, we definitely don't hook up first all the time. Your love yeah. is pretty weak. It is. My love is pretty weak. Yeah. We sing that in a song. Um, he will hold me fast. Mm-hmm. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. That means strong, not, not just yes. like quickly. <laughs> I learned that. Fast, tight, close. So we can easily fall into anxiety, worry, fear if we think that God's love for us depends on our love for him. What else can it do? Anything else you can think of? It minimizes God. Yeah. And maximizes us. It puffs us up and says, it depends on me. My love, why why does God love me? Because I'm just such a loving person. I've loved God more than that guy loves God. That's why God loves me. So it puffs us up in pride. And and it lowers God's grace to us. The only way, the first and the only way, we love God is by faith, by trusting in Christ. Uh, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if we're to love God, like he's commanding us here in Deuteronomy, it must be from hearts of faith. It must be by trusting in Christ. You say you love God, and you're not trusting in Christ. I just don't understand what you mean by saying you're loving God. It would be like me saying, uh, I love my wife, but I really don't love anything she does. I don't really like the way she looks. I wouldn't actually be loving my wife. So to be denying God's one work of grace in Christ, and still try and say you love God, is an impossible endeavor. So love for God is really something only a Christian can do who's put his trust or her trust in Christ. Lastly, true love for God uh, is a love that shows itself in your whole lives. Look at the rest of the verse. We've been looking mostly at verse 4, the rest of these passages, this passage. Uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He couldn't be any more clear that your whole life is supposed to be about loving God. Every aspect of them, from birth to death, from thoughts to words to actions. Jesus says the whole law, the whole Old Testament is summarized in this commandment and the commandment we already saw in in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary of all God expects from his people. And it encompasses the entirety of your lives. Love for God doesn't just show up on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings shows itself in all things. Think of an Olympic athlete who really loves her sport, who's dedicated to pursuing her dream of an Olympic medal. That would fill her whole life, wouldn't it? She won't go to practice for two hours and then never think about her sport for the rest of the day, go to bed really late, eat junk food, talk badly about her teammates. No. Her whole life would reflect that one goal of meddling in whatever sport she's participating in, it would her whole life would reflect that passion. Love for God is the same. It 
shows up in our whole lives. Yes, every Christian will continue to sin. But we'll grow in holiness. We'll grow in devotion over years and decades, Lord willing, of the Christian life. But that love for God will start to creep in to every aspect of the Christian's life. This is an obedient love uh, that obeys all of God's commandments. It's wholehearted. Uh, the opposite of this, wholehearted love for God, would be hypocrisy. Can anyone help us and give a little definition or an example of hypocrisy? What it means to be a hypocrite? The Pharisees. Maybe a modern day example? A lot of people in general do what? And do that thing. Saying one thing mm -hmm. and doing another. Mm -hmm. Jesus strongly condemns hypocrisy, especially in the Pharisees, people who say they're religious and then live a different life. They, he says, uh, Isaiah rightly prophesied about you. You draw near to God, to me with your lips, but your hearts are very, very far from me, he says. God doesn't want hypocrites. He wants wholehearted, obedient, faithful love. And this love is the most wonderful thing in the entire universe. It's better than the love of any human. It's better than the praise of men. It's sweeter than anything money can buy. The love of God is worth pursuing. It's worth cultivating for the rest of your life. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is a mantra to live by. It's a reminder to recite to yourself daily. It's a question to ask yourself. Am I loving God this way? Do my actions and words show this? This is a law that drives us to Christ. The only one who's ever fulfilled this, done this perfectly, lived a life God required that is perfect in loving God in every nook and cranny of his life. It drives us to Christ who gives us a love for God when we're united to him by faith. This is something to look forward to as we look to an eternity of loving fellowship with God. Let's pray.